As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right. Over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs, then medium wigs. Also small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about wigs. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash results to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash results. Terms and conditions apply. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This is 2014. Hamas had won the Golden Boot, the World Cup, and he was in Colombia on holiday. And he was supposed to fly from Colombia to Miami and meet us in Miami for our game in Miami. So we fly out of Barranquilla and um, we arrive in Miami and we go on Twitter and we see James is in the Madrid airport. And I go to our team manager and I say, was he supposed to fly from Medellin to Madrid to Miami? <laughs> he's like, no, he's supposed to fly from Medellin to Miami. <laughs> he's not supposed to go to Madrid. And they were like, ah, oh, okay. Well, I guess he's a Real Madrid player now. <laughs> and he was, they sold him that day. Sebastian Alvarado with the Coffee and Football Podcast, a long-form interview where I sit with some of the most interesting and influential profiles involved in the game. Today's guest is Bruce Bundren, the CEO and founder of Riviera Sports Marketing. He's a seasoned executive with a career spanning over 20 years at the very top of sports business. Among other positions, he's been the head of commercial partnerships at Liverpool Football Club, the commercial director of AS Monaco. Most recently, he was the chief commercial officer of Relevant Sports, the company that owns, operates, and manages all aspects of the International Champions Cup. Bruce offers some amazing insights into behind the scenes of the business of sports, and more specifically, how football clubs are managed, financed, how they do their commercial partnerships, strike sponsorship deals, and how they finance their player deals. So for all of you interested in the business of sports, this is for you. So without further ado, here is my chat with... Bruce Bunker. Bruce Bunker, welcome to uh, Coffee and Football. That's good to be here. Thanks for having me. <laughs> How are you doing, sir? Fantastic. Never better. Since the theme here is Coffee and Football, I got to ask you about your coffee habits and, and how do you typically drink it? Coffee, I set the timer every morning 
this for the the timer on the coffee at the same time as the the alarm on my phone next to my bed. So whenever I actually end up waking up and walking out of the bedroom, coffee's ready, and it's usually Starbucks. <laughs> Sorry. Oh, gosh. <laughs> All right. It, it had to come from from a Texan. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But you know what? They, you know, there's two there's two Starbucks now in Monaco. I don't know if you knew that or not. I didn't know no, that. Very, very popular. Yeah, I bet. Um, well, yeah. I mean, all over, all, all, all over Europe. Yeah, they're packed. And people say, "Oh, there's no way that would survive in in Monaco," but yeah, they're they're packed all the time. Yeah. Um, take me through a typical day for you. So, from the moment that you wake up, what time does that alarm sound? What types of routines do you have? And uh, and then from there on, I usually get up at six a.m. in um, and go to workout. Um, you know, listen, in working in sports, you have no idea what's happening, what's going to happen with your day. Your day, um, could go in many different directions. So it's better to get the, the workout in in the morning. So work out, go to the office. And what I've been doing recently, which I didn't do when I was younger, but I do a lot more now is take the time about half an hour and make a priority list. And the list could be anywhere between uh, seven and 10 things I have to do during the day. And no matter what happens, no matter what meeting I get pulled into, what crisis I get pulled into, what fire drill or temp- temper tantrum I get I get pulled into, I make sure I get those seven or ten things done every single day. How specifically do you do it? Do you write it down on a piece of paper? Yeah, I write it down on a, on a yellow sticky note. <laughs> That's it. And put it next to my computer. No matter what happens, I make sure I get those seven or ten things done. What media do you consume to stay up to date? Um, soccer business journals. Like sports, um, uh, sports business journals, soccer business journals. So Soccer X, uh, Sports Business International, Sports Business Journal. Uh, also, just business business publications like uh, Bloomberg and Harvard Business Review and things like this. And that's what, actually I spend my first hour of the day doing that. So I get up at six, read for an hour, then go to the gym, and then go to the office because I need this hour every single morning. And this hour, I do set part of my priorities for the day. I also you know, I need this hour of, um, it's called a semi meditation, right? So you're just preparing yourself for the day. And again, this is something that I learned sort of, um, I guess maybe eight to 10 years into my career. And that is, there's, there's, you're going to get pulled in so many different directions and you kind of need a North star, you know, you kind of need a guidepost. Um, otherwise you're going to get really emotional about some things make a lot of rash knee-jerk decisions. And if you don't have that sort of time every single day, and for me it's in the morning, to set your compass and make sure you're fully aware and you're in tune and you have your priorities set and you go into that day um, focused, then who knows what could happen. And you're probably not going to be successful in the end. And this is really important, especially in the world of European football, because things go really, really fast and there's a lot of pressure. And uh, it's important to... um, it's important to stay focused. What do you do to keep evolving yourself? Do you have any kinds of routines or do you have any specific things that you do to constantly keep evolving? It's going to a lot of conferences. It is making sure you set aside time to contact people, the leaders in your industry and have a, have a coffee with them or have a meal with them. It is um, making sure you're fully abreast on everything that's happening within the industry. So you're reading everything you possibly can, not only in the sports industry, but also business and in the world. I mean, we're 
we're working in the business of, of football, global football. So geopolitics is really important. You know, things that are happening in Asia, things that are happening in Eastern Europe, things that are happening in the Middle East. It affects what we do um, more than probably any other sport in the world. And also, it's just sort of an internal philosophy where if you are going to work in this industry, you have to constantly being you have to constantly push yourself to evolve and get better and get better and get better. I mean, I learned French at age forty, right? People say, "Oh, you can't learn you can't learn a foreign language unless you're a kid." I don't know. I learned French at forty, and I'm currently taking Spanish classes right now. Really? Well, you, I mean, you have to, an individual private lesson at home twice a week. I mean, because you have to do this if you want really want a, a career in, in global football. You need to speak more than English. You've got to speak multiple languages, like you do, and uh, you know you have to understand what's going on around the world, and you have to be able to understand how it, what, what it's like to work with, work in different cultures. And this is really really important. You've had a a long career in the sports industry, specifically in football. Although you've touched a few other sports as well, but most of your career has been built on the on the business side of uh, of, of football. Starting off at DC United, you were at Liverpool, you were at AS Monaco, at Relevant Sports, and here we are today. You're the CEO and founder of uh, Riviera Sports, doing your uh, your own venture. How does that feel? It feels good to work for yourself. I think everybody that works for themselves will say it feels better to work for themselves than to work for somebody else. So, But Riviera Sports Marketing is really just uh, helping out friends, to be honest. During the time that I was at OS Monaco and even the time at Relevant Sports, I had friends and business counterparts who working in various sports, not even only football, who have asked me to help out on certain projects to help them broker deals, to ask uh, my advice, consult on you know certain projects that they're working on. So I've always had this sort of uh, side gig uh, here in New York. You call it the side hustle, <laughs> and I've I've always had I've had this up and running since uh, March of 2015 when I left Os Monaco. So it's not something that it's um, you know 100% dedicated full time. It's more of just helping out friends and um, you know uh, using it as a vehicle to engage in in unique opportunities that come along or interesting things that I'm interested in and yeah just to sort of sort of keep it moving in between these positions that I tend to end up having which are massively time consuming like being the commercial director of a football club that goes from league uh, league 2 to the quarterfinals of the Champions League or running the commercial marketing and PR of the world's largest preseason uh, international football tournament uh, every summer the International Champions Cup um, which take up a massive amount of time and so every once in a while you need to take some breathers in between these these jobs and do a couple of you know unique bespoke interesting things on your own as an example, what would an opportunity look like? Who is it that gives you a call? What do they say? And what does it look like from there? What I see a lot in, what I've been working mostly in is in sponsorship. Uh, and what you see a lot is, and I believe it or not, in 2017, we still have a lot of companies out there who want to become a household name and they want to grow their brand in a in a region outside of their home region. So if they're an Asian brand, they want to grow their they want to grow their business or grow their brand in the US or if it's a US brand, they want to grow their business in, in Asia or Europe. And what a lot of times these brands will do is they'll go out and they'll spend a massive amount of money on a sports sponsorship. There hasn't been you can tell from the very beginning, there hasn't been a lot of critical thinking done in why they're spending their uh, this money. 
Why is that? Um, you know, a lot of it is, you know, there hasn't been a, a lot of people that are in, engaging in the sport, the area of sports sponsorship from the very beginning aren't classically trained um, sports marketers. They've got a bunch of money burning a hole in their pocket and they think football is cool and sexy. So I'll just do a big deal with a big club or uh, an association or national team or a specific player, you know, because it's cool and it's sexy and it's fun. And, and, you know, and everybody, everybody thinks they know everything there is to know about sports marketing or sponsorship or sports. And unless you're classically trained and you spend a lot of time in this industry and in this space, you know that, I mean, you can waste a lot of money and you can see very little return on this. And so, you know, what I tend to do is, is look out for these kind of opportunities where these organizations are spending a lot of money and they're getting very little return. They kind of don't know what they're doing. And um, there's an opportunity there to either help them myself or introduce them to somebody else that can help them as well. And it really saves them from spending just gobs and gobs and gobs of money, seeing very little return. You know, people think there's a lot of pressure on um, sports teams to generate sponsorship revenue. There's just as much pressure on the brands to achieve ROI. And to be very, very clear about this money that I spend, it's going to um, result in X sales or X brand um, recall or, or, or whatever. So these are the kind of opportunities that I'm looking for. And because I have the experience in the U.S. and Europe and in Asia as well, I have a keen eye on uh, understanding when brands are trying to cross borders and create uh, a new market and they could just be doing it better. And I try to help them out to do it better. Do you have an example? So just to make it simple for our listeners to understand, like what would an example of a brand be that's kind of taken this path and maybe just poured a bunch of money into it, but didn't really see that, that much of a return? Well, I think the the jury is out on on whether or not brands that are uh, will they if they if they've seen the return or will see the return. Um, I mean, just to give you an example of of brands that that have spent a lot of money right out of the gate. You know, when I was at Liverpool Football Club, our our main sponsor was Standard Chartered, and this was their biggest sponsorship they'd ever had, and their team was really really small. They didn't have an, an activation agency working on their behalf, and this was in year one. Now you fast forward a couple of years, and you see the stuff that they're doing now, and it's it's very good, very well thought out. You can tell they're analyzing the partnership. They've got a larger sponsorship team, and they've got ag- ag- different agencies working for them. They're making the club work harder for them. And this has just happened over a course of, of I guess it's probably seven years now that they've had this deal. Um, but from year one, it wasn't like that. And probably the first two or three years, it wasn't like that. It was it was, it was largely winging it. And they'll admit this, you know, it's nothing, no surprise. And you were part of those conversations and brokering that deal. Yeah, absolutely. It was myself and and Ian Air, our commercial director at the time. But coming from an activation agency background that I had for six years prior to joining Liverpool Football Club, I knew what needed to be done to the kind of resources you need to properly activate a partnership, a global partnership of of that level. So what are those? If we would do the the one oh one of of setting that up, take me through that. Well, the first thing you do need to do before you uh, engage in any sponsorship deal is to understand um, what the what you want the outcome to be. There are many options for brands. You can spend in with a team. You can spend with a specific athlete. Uh, you can spend with the the league. You can spend with the federation. Uh, you can just buy advertising on media advertising, on social, digital, or, or linear. So there's a lot of ways you can spend your money. And just to go in and say, well, we want to be in football, 
So we're going to be, uh, you know, a main sponsor of a, of a Premier League or a La Liga football club. There are, you know, many other options to you if you want to be in football. You don't have to be the main sponsor. So there's a lot of upfront work that needs to be done before you start spending money. You need to decide, you know, what, what, do you, what you want to accomplish, what do you want, you, what do you want to achieve, uh, which sport do you want to play in, do you want to be with an athlete or a team or a federation or a league, do you want to have you know, event activation or is it just going to be media? There's a lot of questions that need to be answered before you write the first check. And once you write the first check, you should have all this stuff figured out well in advance. Because once you write it, that first check, then it's real. <laughs> and um, the stakeholders are going to need to see the return quite quickly. You can't write the first check and then sit down and think, okay, now what do we want to achieve? Because it's too late at that point. What kinds of differences are there, would you say, between different regions or countries or, or even different leagues? Uh, or even within the leagues, there can be a lot of differences between clubs. Um, also, where I'm kind of going with this is football, in terms of sport, has been quite behind compared to some of the other big leagues out there as it comes to kind of the commercial and the sponsorship side of things. I'm actually doing a speech on this, a presentation on this at a sponsorship conference next Perfect. year. <laughs> yeah. so, so let's train on that right now. Yeah. So this is a, this is a good, a good test. Football is actually, it's interesting in that football is, is one of the sports where the fan base is really, it's really important for the fan base for the sport to remain authentic, meaning that it's untouched commercially. When I arrived at Liverpool in 2008, you know, there wasn't a lot of, almost any that I saw, sponsorship activation at a high level, I mean, at a serious level happening on, on match day. There was very little sponsorship activation happening in the stadium. You know, consumer emails to databases, this kind of stuff really wasn't happening at all. I mean, it was football from 10, 15, 20 years before that. You go to an NBA game, bombarded with consumer mess, commercial messages. NFL bombarded with commercial messages from kickoff all the way to the end. I'm talking about in the stadium and in the Premier League in 2008 when I when I arrived at Liverpool, there wasn't that at all. Everything was fan generated. There wasn't commercial messaging at all. Every once in a while, we would do something at halftime, um, maybe one commercial thing at halftime during the entire season. Um, it was very authentic. It was very much about the football, and it was not commercial really at all. Okay, you fast forward nine or ten years, and now you go to Premier League games, you go to to uh, you know international exhibitions, you go to the national team games, World Cup qualifiers, stuff like this, and there's a lot of commercial messages. Perhaps too much at times. Um, yeah, perhaps, perhaps it's still a lot less than you would see in traditional American sports, and a lot of it, of course, has to do with that there are no timeouts in soccer. That and also culturally in the sense that the American sports fan kind of grows into it. And even as a kid, you're kind of exposed to that and, and you're very used to and how it's being packaged commercially. Mm -hmm. A lot of the football fans, whether it's in, in Europe or, or South America, haven't been really used to or they haven't grown up with that. So then there's a bit of a clash once they see that it starts yeah. becoming commercial and they're, sometimes you even get them against you. And this is, this is the the content of the presentation that I'm making exactly this and that I was a classically a US trained sports marketer, right? So I'm one of the ones that's very much used to the commercial message bombardment, but it's uh it doesn't bother me because this is what I grew up in, right? 
And then I arrive in Europe and what needed to happen in Europe and and both clubs I worked for in Europe was there needed to be a ratcheting up quite quickly of commercial revenue and uh, commercialization of those of those two clubs. But those two clubs also were especially those two clubs are very, very particular about making sure that the experience was very authentic and that the club wasn't over-commercialized, especially at Liverpool, because the over-commercialized club is Manchester United. (laughs) The very authentic, genuine club with the people, blue collar, is Liverpool, right? So you can't have um, massive uh, commercial messages and, you know, video board spots and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, playing at a an authentic club like like Liverpool. So it was, how do you find the balance between, um, you know, moving up through the gears commercially and still remaining authentic to the, to the brand of the club? How do you do that? Um, over time, step by step, little by little. And then, you know, the, I think the fans also start realizing after a while that uh, if you want, uh, you know, 50 million pound central midfielder and you want a 25 million pound right back, these things, you know, aren't cheap. And, you know, if you have a billion pounds worth of value on the pitch, you're going to need commercial messages. You know, you're going to need commercial sponsors and you're going to need ticket prices. They're going to get a little bit higher than you're used to. And you're going to have to get used to the club going on tour and you're going to have to, you know, get used to all this stuff. Uh, and that's just the, the, the economics of, of modern football. But I think you can do it in such a way that it's not just overbearing, you know, uh, and you just you you're, you you don't chip away at the authenticity of of the game and and the genuineness of the game. I'd like to ask you a little bit about your uh, background. Um, so, where were you born? Where did you grow up? Born in San Antonio, Texas. Grew up between San Antonio, Lubbock, Texas, and mostly uh, Abilene, Texas. Between age ages of twelve to twenty one, I was in Abilene, Texas. Which I don't know if you're familiar with with Texas, but if you um, if you're in Dallas, Fort Worth, and you take I twenty and you go straight west mm-hmm. as you're heading towards Midland, Odessa, for a couple of hours, you'll end up in, in Abilene, Texas. I like to describe it as Friday Night Lights country because oh, actually my high school is in Friday Night Lights, the movie. Really? Yeah. Oh. That's a, that's a brilliant one. Um, it's actually one of the things. I've been here for 14 years. I still haven't been to a high school football game or even a college football game. No. I've never done a proper hey. tailgate. You need to do that. <laughs> you need to do that. And down south, by the way. Do yeah, it down yeah, south. No. We've got to match our schedules one, one day, and I, I want you to take me to, to one of those games and get, get me the full experience. Yeah, okay. No problem. <laughs> um, in order to get to know you, I guess, in a more personal level, is there anything I should know about the place where you grew up? Like, how has that shaped you? Well, the place I grew up would be the furthest place you could imagine somebody working in European football, <laughs> especially in my last position in European football in Monaco. Monaco and Abilene, Texas are probably the opposite ends of the planet. Now, I would say that um, what I, the sort of the people that I grew up with uh, and the dynamic that I grew up with are, you know, people or uh, a location where the people are really down to earth, really genuine, trustworthy, good manners, very polite. And, um, you know, it's kind of what West Texas is known for. And honestly, this has helped me whenever I move to the UK or move to France or move to different locations around the U.S., 
and that is I always had respect for people and where they're from and who they are from the tops of an organization all the way down to the bottom of the organization. There is a culture of hard work. Uh, my family is a family of farmers. We have a family farm actually in far west Texas on the border of Texas and New Mexico. Uh, it's a proper working cotton farm, which someday will be handed down to me. And I grew up working on that farm as a kid. I drove a tractor before I drove a car. Uh, you know, it's up at the crack of dawn. It's working all day. And I've had this same kind of um, a philosophy on work ethic in everywhere that I've been. So it's a respect for people. It's a work ethic. It's being honest. It's being direct. It's having confidence in what you're doing. And I'm not saying that West Texas is the only place where people can develop those um, types of life skills, but it's certainly where I develop them. And uh, I think this has helped me wherever I've gone. So your father was a farmer. Father was a professor. Oh, he was a professor. A college professor. My grandfather was a, a teacher and a farmer. And then my great-grandparents were full-time farmers, and their parents were full-time farmers, who were the people that arrived sort of in the covered wagon when there was you know, no, no borders and said, everything within your eyesight, we'll take that, <laughs> and then put a fence around it. And that's what it is today. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's, that's fascinating. Um, what did your uh, mother do? She worked in hospital administration in uh, risk management, malpractice, safety, insurance, things like this. What would you say um, was the most important advice that your father gave you? Most important advice that my father gave me? Um, it, would be, uh, it would be plan what you're going to do before you do it. So my dad is the kind of guy where, you know, the flat pack furniture would arrive from Ikea, you know, and uh, most people would just rip open the box and start putting stuff together. And then you'd put the leg on the wrong way, you'd put the arm in the wrong way and the screw in the wrong way. Okay. So my dad's the guy that actually he would study the manual <laughs> and memorize the manual and know it. And the next day we would put it together, you know, and then it would be perfect. First time. No, you know, no wasted time. Nothing had to take apart right? And do it over again. So it was about planning everything in advance of actually doing it. So knowing what you wanted to do, what it, what you wanted to look like before you started doing it. And is that what you do today on a daily basis? Yeah, I tried to do. I mean, one of the things that, um, one of the things that I've tried to instill in every position that I've had in my career is, um, what do we want to happen to understand as an organization? What do we want to happen? So, you know, I see a lot of, in business, I see a lot of, this is what happened, this is what happened, this is what happened. What do we want to happen? And then what happened? And then was it good or bad? And then if it was bad, what do we do to improve? And if it was good, how do we make it better next time? So this is one of the things I keep on making sure that I always um, keep an eye on is what does good look like? And I say this over and over and over again, and people get tired of hearing it, but I ask, what does good look like? What do we want it to look like? What does good look like? Uh, that's... uh Really good uh, piece of uh, advice. I can be one of those with, say, IKEA packs and so on. My girlfriend actually got tired of me with anything that has to do with fixing things. So, you know, she she rather gets a task rabbit to put things together than me, you know, messing it up. I think this is important in football, really. And I've seen this a lot with, with football managers is, so for example, you know, you'll have, a, you'll have a manager and the team will be somewhere like in 10th, 11th, 12th place or something in the Premier League. And the manager will get fired. And I say, well, the team wasn't performing well. Well, what was the goal that was set at the beginning of the year? 
if the goal for that club, for that manager, was to have the team led by Christmas at 10th place and by the end of the season to be somewhere like 8th or 7th, then if you're like 8th, 9th, 10th, then you're right on. You're where you're supposed to be. If your goal is, you know, you've been languishing around the bottom of the table and, you know, you set the goal of we want to win the Premier League, then you have a goal setting issue. <laughs> you don't have a performance issue, you have a goal setting issue. And you see this a lot in, in, in um, I think a lot of football managers get sacked because there's a goal setting issues within the business. Why do you think that is? I think that people, you know, it's funny. I was listening to uh, your your podcast with um, with Jerome, Jerome de Botin. And one of the interesting things that he said was, you know, he's advising uh, super wealthy guys or organizations on buying football clubs. And he said, I just want to let you know that, by the way, when you buy this asset, you're never going to make any money. And the tricky bit comes whenever somebody like Jerome or other guys who advise very wealthy individuals or organizations on buying a football club, by the way, you're never going to make money. And the guy's response is, that's okay. <laughs> I'll, t- I'll do it anyway. You know, yeah. I'll take that. That sounds good to me. Then you know you're dealing with a massively irrational situation, right? Yeah. And then, you know, you could, uh, you know, field a team and the owner of the club thinks we should win the league. But people who worked in the industry for a long time would say, that team on paper, you should finish about 14th. Yeah. So you should be happy with 14th, maybe 12th, a few things go your way, a couple of refereeing decisions, you're playing a big club, they have a bad day, player has a breakout day, whatever. But you're there, they're about 14th. That's what. You, that's the kind of club you have. Owner says, no, we need to be in the Champions League places. Then you've got goal-setting issues, yeah. right? And then that's when managers are in trouble. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's interesting. Um, then... Liverpool came about around, I, I'm, I'm sure the process must have started somewhere there, 2007, 2008. Yeah. 2007, um, yeah. Yeah, take me through that. When I was living in San Francisco, I went and spent uh, two weeks in Germany the summer of 2006 for the World Cup 2006 in Germany. And I hadn't been to Europe probably in four or five years. And once I got back over there and I was in the, uh, the European football environment, I grant it's the World Cup, but it's the same as club football. I, it just reignited the passion and made me focus on my main objective, which is working in European football. So around summer of 2007 is when I said, okay, I've, I've been working for t- I have 10 years now under my belt. DC United, Sport 5, Miller Brewing Company, Visa. It's a decent enough CV that I can start sending it out to European football clubs. It wasn't like, you know, back in 1996 as a graduate student in West Virginia where I'm calling Newcastle United and they're saying, what? Who's this kid? I mean, I have, I think I have a proper shot at it now, right? And I can actually have a real conversation, a real shot at, at going to Europe. So I started getting in touch with uh, people that I had met, you know, when I was working on the Sport 5 business or just people that I met along the way. And so I sent my CV out to um, a former Sport 5 colleague. He said, I know a recruiter in London that's pretty good. So I'll send it to him. Okay, so that's fine. He sent my CV to a a guy in London. And um, a day later, this guy called me and said, uh, we've been hired. My company's been hired as a recruiter for Liverpool Football Club who, as you know, was just recently purchased by two American guys, Tom Hicks and George Gillette. And they're looking to add some 
senior executives, some key staff in the commercial business, the commercial department. Uh, would you be interested in talking to uh, somebody at Liverpool about um, working for them? And of course, the flashbacks in my mind of the the games that I was watching as a, as a high school kid, you know, watching Ian Rush and Stephen Maneman, and I thought, this is strange. This is the team that I really, really like. And I said, yeah, of course, right? So I, I had a phone interview with uh, Ian Eyre, who was the commercial director at the time, and later became the chief executive up until recently. Probably spoke for about an hour, hour and a half. He's a nice guy. You know him? I've met him. Yeah. I, I don't know. I can't say that I know him, but I've met him. He's a super nice guy. Yeah, he's a great guy. Um, and um, he said, okay, well, let's let's meet in person. They're having a board meeting in New York for, for LFC. And so we met uh, at the St. Regis in New York and sat down for about an hour and a half, two hours and spoke. And um, at the at the end of the meeting, um, you know, Ian's a very much of a feel guy. I mean, he he goes with sort of what his feeling is. He's got a good he's got a good radar for people. And he said at the end of the meeting, we're going to make you an offer. <laughs> and so, you know, two days later, I got an offer to to be the head of partnerships for uh, for Liverpool Football Club. And um, a bit of back and forth negotiating, and I accepted. And uh, that was it. That was the that was the ticket. That was the ticket to Europe. How did that make you feel? It was unbelievable, really. Yeah, um, and it wasn't you know wasn't nervous, wasn't um, scared, wasn't fearful at all. It was this is exactly what I've been wanting to do for the past you know ten, eleven, twelve years. Um, this feels so right. It feels so natural. Have you been, people would ask me, "Have you been to Liverpool before?" Nope. Doesn't doesn't matter. Don't care, <laughs> right? And. Um, you know, I'm single and I guess I've never been married, but I'm guessing this is probably the feeling when you get married. It's like people say, these are the challenges, this one and this one and that one. I don't care. It just feels like the right thing to do. And I guess it's probably something like that. You know, I never lived in the UK before. I'd never been to Liverpool before. I'd never met anybody at Liverpool Football Club before except for Ian. Uh, I didn't know really what I was getting myself into, but this just felt like an amazing opportunity and it was the right thing to do. And you know, I knew I could do, I just had this feeling that I knew I could do well. You moved to Liverpool, step into the organization. What were your first impressions? First impression was that the club was, looked big on the outside, but was really kind of quote unquote small on the inside, right? In that it wasn't massively organized, super efficient, you know, there wasn't um, a lot of infrastructure, a robust infrastructure. I mean, it was a big name, you know, big club. At that time, it was number one in Europe, co- the coefficient number one in Europe because they'd won the Champions League in Istanbul in 2005. They won the FA Cup in 2006, Champions League final versus uh, Milan in, in um, Athens in 2007. So they, their coefficient was number one. This is the, the Real Madrid of today, <laughs> right? And there was no sponsorship department and there was a very loose commercial department and there were, the organization was spread up in a couple of different offices all over Liverpool and it was pretty disorganized for what I was the number one team in Europe and what I thought it was going to be on the inside. That doesn't mean it was a a bad thing. It just wasn't exactly what I expected it to be. And then what happened? So how did you uh, approach the job and and what were kind of the first things that you did during that initial period? You know, I had been working the past five and a half, six years on the brand side. And my job now was to be the head of partnerships for the football club. So the first things I wanted to do was go meet our partners. So I flew to Copenhagen to meet with uh, Carlsberg. I met with the guys from Adidas 
who are Kit Supplier. Met with all of our partners, introduced myself, and I told them the th- the the things that um, were very obvious to me coming from U.S. sports business and U.S. sports marketing. Things like uh, asking questions, you know, what are your objectives for your partnership with the club? What are you trying to accomplish? Why are you spending this money with us? Uh, how can I help you? How can I provide value to you? Um, these kind of questions like this was just basic, you know, sports marketing 101. And they were looked at me like I had four heads. <laughs> they said, nobody's ever asked us these questions before. What kind of value can you provide me? I mean, you give me tickets for every game. You have my logo on your shirt. I was like, yeah, I mean, I know that. But I mean, what else can we do? I mean, what kind of activation can we do? What kind of, uh, you know, fan programs can we do? What kind of consumer engagement can we do? What? <laughs> what are you, what are you, why are you asking me these questions? You want to, you really want to help me out? You really want to be involved in my business? Yeah, I want to know. I mean, I want to help you out. I'm here to help you out. I want to make sure you get your money's worth. So I realized quite quickly that this was, I was coming from Mars. Like they had never, they had never been approached like this before. They'd never been asked these questions before. Um, and the, the, the next season, the, the seven, eight, 2007, 2008 season, I was 2008, 2009 season. I did their, I wrote their activation plan for Carlsberg. I said, this is what I think you should accomplish for this year. And we're going to work on this together. And the, the head of sports marketing for Carlsberg, Keld, was blown away. <laughs> I said, I don't have any of the football clubs that we sponsor don't do something like this. But this is just basic stuff in the U.S. I'm not saying, you know, it was spectacular. It was just normal stuff you learn. I'm working on the Miller Brewing Company business or working in the visa business or working in Major League Soccer. It's just what you learn in getting your graduate degree in sports business. And then I really, at that point, I really realized that the um, European sports business is behind the U.S. and that I could be really successful here and we could do some great things at the football club um, by just doing basic sports marketing one-on-one stuff. So this this American guy from Texas shows up in Liverpool, yep. gets very well received from the sponsors and the and the partners. Um, how was that reception, or or how was it taken, kind of within the club and and within the community? Because they've been doing things their way yeah. forever. Yeah, let's start with the uh, let's start with the the club first. The club was divided into two types of people. There were the people that have been there for a long, long time. Both people had been, both sets of people had been there for a long time. There was one set of people that said, this is the way we do it. This is the way we're always going to do it. We're never going to change. It works. You know, thanks for your help. Thanks for your advice. But, you know, we've got a good, pretty good formula here. And then there was the people that had been there for a long time. And I would say, this is, these are my ideas and express my opinions. And they'd say, thank God you're here <laughs> because this is the kind of people we need to change this club because this is, broken and this is messed up and we need this to work well and this to work better and you're the kind of guy that can help us out so as you can imagine the people that were that dug their heels in and said this is the way we always do it those people didn't stick around for for very long because at that time at that club there was a massive sea change happening you know again as i say number one number one club in europe in the uefa coefficient we had six sponsors six no real ticketing strategy no real hospitality strategy you know, no real merchandise retail strategy. Uh, the the famous story is uh, in 2005, uh, Liverpool wins the Champions League in Istanbul. And the next day, the club team shop was closed in Liverpool. So everybody's so excited. My club, you know, won the Champions League and can't buy a kit. Can't buy a kit. So it's that kind of stuff that it's just basic stuff, right? So, you know, all this experience that I had had previously, what we just talked about, being from Texas, being respectful, being polite, having manners, 
working in the European football community with Sport5, I used everything, all of my experience to navigate through the organization and who was going to be on my side and who wasn't. And But I wanted to, one of the things I made sure was that I, I, I made really, really sure that people knew that I was there to help. Uh, I'm from Texas. The owner, Tom Hicks, was from Texas, so people thought that I was Tom Hicks' son. Even somebody said this. Are you Tom Hicks' son? I said, no, it's just coincidence. I'm from Texas. He's from Texas, but I don't know. I don't know the guy, right? And so people, you know, I didn't want people to think that I was there to, you know, to sack people because it wasn't that at all. It was, I was there to help. I was here. I was there to grow the business, you know? And um, it didn't take too long for people to realize that I was there to help. I was there to, to assist and I had the best interests of the club in mind and, and I was willing to work hard and and um, and be and make sure the club was successful. The community side was different in that. First of all, I had no idea what these people are talking about. Scouse, you know Scouse well? <laughs> no clue, right? This accent. So probably for the first year, I had no idea what people were saying to me. <laughs> it's difficult. It's huh? massively yeah. difficult. Um, so that took a little bit of adjustment. But <clears throat> when people realize that I'm an American um, from Texas moved to Liverpool to help out Liverpool Football Club. It was arms wide open. It was everybody was here to help. Everybody was here to make sure you fit in well. Um and I had no problems at all getting adjusted to um getting adjusted to the community, getting adjusted to Liverpool and the northwest of England and um and uh, <clears throat> one of one of the one of the guys that really helped me was Brad Friedel. You know Brad, um US uh, goalkeeper. He was playing at Blackburn at the time. And, um, but living in Manchester. And so I spent quite a bit of time with him at the very beginning. Uh, and he would say, this is what you need to know about English football. This is what you need to know about the clubs. This is what you need to know about the players and the managers and the executives. And I mean, he lived, he, he played at Liverpool. You know, he went from the Columbus crew to Liverpool. And he said, this is what you need to know about the club. And, uh, and he, so he was really helpful as well in helping me get settled. Um, and it's just, it, and at that time, there was only three Americans working in, in English football. There was uh, Jamie Regal, who was working at Manchester United, uh, myself, and a guy named David Sapulo, who was working at, uh, at Liverpool as well. So it was three Americans. And not only was I focused on being successful at the club, I was also focused on, on representing America. Because when I first arrived, of course, there was this, wait a minute, you're American. What do you know about football? <laughs> right? And that was playing in the community as well as being in the business. Um, <clears throat> I was trying to find pickup games, you know, five-a-side games or 11-a-side games. And so I had some friends in the club calling around to say, yeah, we, there's a new American guy uh, on our staff. Uh, he's looking for a game. What? <laughs> American guy? He's probably not good. <laughs> probably no good at all. And then I'd arrive and they'd see that I'm an okay footballer and they'd say, okay, well, you're okay. You're, you're the exception. But it was, yeah, it was representing America and making sure that, you know, it was my chance to show that uh, America knows football and has, you know, uh, has set the bar in sports business. And uh, I was a bit of a pioneer. And so I was not only representing myself, I thought, not only representing myself and wanted to go to f for Liverpool, it was, you know, representing the U.S. What's your um, greatest memory from that time? If you had to pick one, I would say when we smashed Real Madrid four-one at Anfield in the uh, quarterfinals of the Champions quarterfinal quarterfinals knockout round of the Champions League two thousand nine wouldn't happen today. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, though you know those days were good for Liverpool. I mean, my my the first game that I ever worked, we played Arsenal in the quarterfinals and we won four-two at home. 
and uh, Anfield was rocking on fire. And I thought, this is a, this is incredible. The next year, it was a knockout round. The next year we played Real Madrid. We drew to Real Madrid in the uh, knockout round. We won away 1-0 at the Bernabeu. We came home. We beat them 4-0 uh, at Anfield. And that week was a great week. That week is the week that I remember the most because on the Wednesday night, we beat Real Madrid 4-0. Went to Old Trafford and beat United 4-1. Came back the next week and beat Villa with Brad in goal. 5-0. And he got sent off <laughs> for bringing down Torres in the box. Did you grab uh, any beers with him afterwards? Yeah, I did. I did. And he's like, what, what can I do? You know, I mean, he was, I just, you know, I slid and he was coming in and I mean, I had, I had nowhere to go. But at that time, you know, we, that, that week we scored um, 13 goals in one week and it was an incredible week. It was great. That's, that's the, one of the best memories I have of, of, uh, of Liverpool. Another really, really good memory I have from that time is um, we went to Asia the summer of 2011 and we played a game in... Um, We played a game in Guangzhou, China. We played a game in KL, Malaysia. And we had a private training session for Standard Charter, our main sponsor in Singapore. And we had 40,000 people show up for an open training, the game in KL. And um, we're coming out, I was in the tunnel. And I was coming out at the same time that the players were coming out to the open training session. And uh, I remember Charlie Adam, left-footed player, Scottish player that we purchased from uh, Blackpool. Uh, he walked out and he looked around the stadium. This is open training, right? The day before the game. And he says, the team were playing red? <laughs> I said, no, those are our fans. Those are our supporters. And there was, you know, 39,000 Liverpool supporters and like 1,000 were playing the Malaysian national team, I think, and playing like 1,000 Malaysian national team supporters. And this was training to watch the guy dribble around cones, you know. And the next day was sold out like 60,000 people. And you realize, you know, we're a football club from the northwest of England. And here we are in Malaysia, and it's 60,000 people, 58,000 supporting us, and 2,000 supporting our opponent. What is this, right? This is crazy. And I'm from Abilene, Texas. <laughs> yeah, that was, a good, that was a good day. To wrap up the Liverpool uh, chapter, as you were getting... Towards the end of your time there, mm -hmm. what happened then that led you to uh, move a little bit further south down to Monaco? Um, well, I'd been there for five seasons, Liverpool, and um, my ambition was to move up within the organization, within that organization, but in general, an organization to have a wider remit. You know, I was running the sponsorship department, both sales and activation as well as our international tours. We did two tours of Asia and one tour of the U.S. in the summertime. Were those part of your kind of initiatives or, or ideas? Um, and I mean, the, the concept of European clubs going internationally w was, was there already. Oh. Um, I had experience in this because I had worked at DC United. And I, as I said, we hosted Leeds and we hosted Newcastle. And by the time at Sport 5, we were doing a bit of work on tours. So I knew the, the situation, touring situation. And, um, you know, an international tour for a club is a military operation. <laughs> and, um, you know, it's taking something like a half a billion dollars in assets, as well as 20 staff members on top of that, and moving them around Asia and the U.S. and, you know, getting him prepared for, for the season coming up. And I'm a v, very detail-oriented guy, and I knew the dynamic and I knew the situation. So 
when it came up to the our first tour was summer of 2009, um, I was handed that project, which I was happy to do. So I was doing uh, first team international tours as well as uh, running the sponsorship team, sales and activation. And the next step up was to be the commercial director to manage all commercial revenue. So in addition to sponsorships and tours, it was ticketing and hospitality and merchandising and TV rights and all commercial revenue. And my boss was the commercial director, Ian. He got promoted to managing director, CEO. And um, the commercial director position was filled at that time by guys that were coming over from Boston because we had just been acquired by Fenway Sports Group. So my opportunity, there was a, a lot of guys from, from the ownership group were coming over and, and kind of getting stuck into the club. So it wasn't only for me, there was a variety of, of the positions that, you know, people who were already at the club weren't actually being considered for because other people were coming in, which it was a bit disappointing. But in the end, I'd been there for five seasons. Living in the northwest of England is pretty grim. And I thought, you know what, this is actually perfect for me to go somewhere else. I wanted to experience what it was like to work in a different European league. Um, I felt really ashamed as an American only speaking English. <laughs> and I wanted to be forced to learn a foreign language. So I really wanted to work in Italy or Spain or France or Germany. And I thought that what I experienced when I first arrived at Liverpool in the Premier League and that it was a bit behind and then I could, you know, just use my sports marketing 101, as I say, and make a big impact. I could probably do the same in Serie A or Liga or La Liga because out of all those European leagues, you know, the Premier League is, is one of the more progressive. So I started shopping around and looking around for commercial director positions on the continent. And I found the Monaco position through a recruiter as well in London. And at the beginning, when I first met with a recruiter, he went through the qualification, the, the objectives of the position, uh, the criteria, and went through my CV and said, you're the perfect match, but you don't speak French. And they're really looking for everything that you have, but they're also looking for a French speaker. So I didn't think I was going to get considered for the position at all. I said, well, sorry, there's nothing I can do about that. So about a month went by. They came back to me and said, actually, the French thing will teach you. You'll need to learn. Owner is not so worried about this. It's much harder to find somebody with your experience and uh, your qualifications than it is to, f to hire, uh, to find a French speaker. So they accepted, they offered me the position and I accepted it. Now keep in mind, this is Monaco 2012. We were in Ligue 2. And the previous season, the first season the club had been relegated to Ligue 2. They were nearly bankrupt. And I'm sure Jerome has told you all about this. Um, yeah, so they were they they were at the bottom of the table uh, in the 11-12 season, bottom of the table in League Two, uh, League Two, and you know there's no League Trois in in France. Like it's it's national, national after that, and it's pretty much like playing at Chelsea Pierce. <laughs> <laughs> it's the same thing, you know. Um, and so it would be disastrous because you know just seven years previously they're in the Champions League final against uh, Porto and Jose Mourinho. It was a precipitous drop. And um, and this is when, you know, Albert um, got uh, Mr. Rebolov left to come in and, and purchase the club or take over the debt of the club and invest in the club and, and to save the club from going into Nacional and keep keep the club in Ligue 2. And then I arrived the following season and um, the ambition was to, to win Ligue 2 that year and get promoted to Liga. So I arrive and and uh, the my the last game that I worked for for Liverpool was we played Chelsea at home, the last game of the season, 
and was in the summertime, moved to Monaco. And my first game at Monaco, we played Valenciennes at home in the Coupe de France. And uh, so I went from Anfield versus Chelsea to Louis Deux versus Valenciennes. And there was like a thousand people there and a dog. <laughs> that was it. And just as a side note there, the owner, uh, Rybobovlev, mm -hmm. is the uh, Russian mining billionaire, I believe, right? Mm -hmm. Potash. Yeah. He made his fortune in potash. Yeah, mining potash. Yeah. Yep. Uh, at that time, I don't know, worth like 12 billion in the world, 12 billion, like number 72 in the world, richest guy in the world, something like that. Um, so I thought, oh man, what, where have I come? <laughs> You know, it was a great surrounding. I mean, yeah. I'm in the south of France, right? It's terrific. But, you know, there was no infrastructure in the club at all. You know, I had no desk, uh, no computer. Uh, you push control P, nothing comes out. <laughs> right. Uh, there was no budget. Uh, there was about 10 people working in the office, maybe 12 people working in the office. I mean, it was, we were building this club from scratch, scratch. Did you know all this stepping into it? I didn't know it was the same kind of thing when I, when I joined Liverpool. Maybe I should ask more questions whenever I'm interviewing for positions because I didn't know it was like that. But to be honest with you, I really kind of didn't care because, listen, I'm moving to the south of France, right? I'm moving, I'm working for AS Monaco. It's a great, massive history. Great players have come through there. And, uh, you know, I was on a good compensation package. I was the commercial director. It was the position that I wanted. So I didn't really care. And I thought, you know, I, I built a department within uh, two departments within um, Liverpool from scratch. I can build this department from scratch as well. So I wasn't phased by it. It just kind of was what it was. And I was going for it. Right. And um, so it was it. I mean, I arrived and you know, just try to figure out what was going on and get stuck in and, and try to make it work from the very beginning in French. <laughs> How long did it take for you to feel comfortable in communicating in French? Uh, a year, at least a year. The first six months was pure hell. <laughs> Not because, I mean, you're sitting in staff meetings and executive team meetings and, you know, you're going to games and, and you have no idea what these people are talking about. And you've been hired to affect change within the organization and you can't, you can't um, affect change within the organization. You can't, you can't influence the organization because you can't, even, you can't even speak to your colleagues. You can't even speak to your clients. And unfortunately, there are a handful of people within the organization that, that did speak English uh, well, and they would be sort of my translators and they would help me out. And it was the same kind of um, same kind of dynamic that I had when I joined Liverpool is that, you know, quite quickly you kind of figure out who's for you and who's against you. Right. And um, you just kind of have to navigate the situation. You know, for me, it was um, it was a difficult period in that, you know, you have to build a League Two club from scratch. You're in a foreign language. You're in a foreign country. You know, it wasn't uh, wasn't easy at all. But, you know, in every one of those situations that are not so easy, you start finding out about it, but you're, about yourself and, and how far you what's your edge, how far your comfort zone goes and how far you can push yourself. And, and it always gets better. Things always get better. So after about a year, you know, we, listen, we were promoted to, to, to Ligue 1. Owner spent a lot of money. Big players arrive: Hamez and Fakao and Abidal and Toulon and Moutinho and all these guys come. And then it's Monaco versus Paris. And then you know, then it's big time, right? And then the sponsors start coming. Stadium gets starts getting more full. The hospitality suites start getting more full. I was allowed to hire some staff, so I hired some more staff. And then you just start building the business. You just start building it, and then it gets better. 
As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right. Over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs, then medium wigs. Also small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about wigs. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash results to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash results. Terms and conditions apply. Being the commercial director, you know, you're looking at increased uh, revenue and, and so on. By this time, you've had quite a bit of experience. You're taking not necessarily a step down, but a step down since it, it's a League Two club. Yep. Uh, obviously, demands are probably a little bit smaller than, mm-hmm. than at, a, at a club like uh, like Liverpool. Mm-hmm. So when that's set and the kind of ROI or, or the measures are, are set, does that typically come from the club that sets those out? Or does that come from, from your end? Because I'm, I'm making the assumption that you're probably even a bit more savvy than those who are on, on the other side, because there's a reason why they're bringing you in. Yeah. Well, this is the thing, and, and this is a dynamic that a lot of people senior club executives are facing right now because there's a lot of foreign owners and foreign investors into into football clubs. And it goes back to what we were talking about in the very beginning, which is goal setting. You know, I had experience in the US, had experience at Liverpool. I arrive into Monaco after a couple of months. I understand what the revenue capacity is of the business. I looked at all the historics, whatever was available. You know, pretty quickly you can figure out what the goals should be. Then, you know, you put that all together and, um, you know, you go to the owner of the business and you say, this is the revenue I think we can generate. If you provide me these additional resources, I think we can generate even more revenue. This is the cost structure that I think we can stay underneath um, to run the business. And so this is what I, this is what I think one, three, five, ten 10 years looks like. You know, wealthy guys like Mr. Rubolovlev or guys from China or wherever, they don't get to be who they are by not pushing the envelope. So you can imagine what his response to me was. He's like, I would like to see more of this, more revenue and lower of this cost, which is the normal thing, right? It's the same thing I would say if I was owner. I'd say that's a good shot, but I'd like to say 25% more revenue and 15% less costs. Now go do it, which is exactly what the conversation was. And so then you have your marching orders and you go try to do it. What's your um, strategy there? Like, do you lowball it a little bit because you know you have a bit to play yeah, with? Yeah, I don't like to do that. Some people do that kind of stuff. You know, they will massively inflate their their costs, or they will massively lowball the revenue because they want to underpromise and overdeliver. I think that's just a that's the game that is pretty dangerous. I'd rather just be forthright and upfront. I mean, the thing is, um, and you know, going back to what we were talking about earlier, and that is, I always want uh, my boss or the owner of my company to know that I'm going to give him a no BS assessment of the business. Like if he asks me a question, I'm going to give him, I'm going to tell it like I see it. I'm going to call it like I see it. There's not going to be any smoke and mirrors. There's not going to be any waffling. I'm not going to, you know, provide unrealistic expectations. I'm going to call it like I see it. 
And so I don't, especially when it comes to budgeting or goal setting, I don't like to play games like that. This is what I really think we can, we can, uh, we can achieve. You know, this is why you, um, this is why you hire personal trainers to push you beyond your comfort zone. And this is what, you know, good owners of businesses do. They push their employees past their comfort zone. And then after you've pushed been pushed past your comfort zone and you achieve something beyond what you think your capacity is, then it opens up a whole new level of thinking for yourself. And this is what good, the good bosses and good owners do. You ended up staying there for about three years, yep. I believe. Mm-hmm. Um, how would you summarize your time there, and and then how did the transition out of there come about? I would define my time there as a rocket ship ride. Really, I mean, as I say, you know, we um, we were in the in League Two when I arrived. I described my first game as an an Os Monaco employee versus Valenciennes in the Coupe de France. My last game as an Os Monaco employee was uh, the quarterfinals of the Champions League versus Juventus. <laughs> so massive difference between my first game and my last game. I guess what I also describe it as you know drinking through a water hose. <laughs> we you know we we had to build the club from scratch. We were a two person commercial department, myself and. Well, maybe if count the ticketing guys, maybe a four-person commercial department. When I left, we I think we were twelve people, so we were we had to hire people really, really fast. We went from League Two to League One to the Champions League, Champions League quarterfinals, and three seasons. Um, got past Arsenal in the knockout round, went to play Juventus, uh, finished second in 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 Liga, on our first year backup, finished third the second year. Did the biggest kit deal in the history of the club with Nike. Um, didn't create a more sponsorship revenue and more ticketing revenue and more hospitality revenue and more merchandising revenue in the history of that club. Even the years when they were in the playing in the Champions League consistently, in sort of you know uh, a one or two or three or four, and uh, you know we had famous players playing for the club then. I mean it was and we played we played a we played a exhibition game in Barranquilla, Colombia, the first French team to ever play a game in South America because we have Falcao and James. Uh, we played a game in Miami. Uh, versus a Colombian team at the Marlins uh, baseball stadium. So it was uh, it was a wild ride. It really was. Um, all set against the backdrop of living on the Côte d'Azur, <laughs> which is pretty cool. Uh, it was an amazing experience. And, and honestly, it's an experience that, that, that really changed my life because, you know, I had to learn a foreign language. I had to build a company from scratch. I'm working for uh, a, a very um, ambitious uh, Russian billionaire you know, we're, we're expected to do great things on the pitch. We're expected to do great things commercially. And it was, it was a lot of hard work and, but very, very rewarding. Ultimately, um, why I left the business is because of financial fair play, you know, clubs, European clubs that want to play in the Champions League can only carry a deficit of 25 million euros or 50 million, 50 million euros for the two seasons previous to their participation in the Champions League. And, uh, I mean, this is all public information. It's on the UEFA website. And we were carrying a deficit of 125 million euros, 100 wow. million euros over the UEFA limit. And so basically UEFA said, uh, shut it down. Uh, you need to decrease your costs yep. and increase your revenues uh, to fall in line with the financial fair play regulations. So they put us on uh, probation, if you will. And this is when you saw Monaco selling all the players. This is when we sold... Um, you know, Carrasco to Atletico Madrid, and we sold Condogbia to Inter Milan, and we sold Martial to um, to Manchester United, and we sold uh, we loaned Falcao to to Manchester United, and we sold James to Real Madrid, and we just got rid of all these guys that just eighteen months previously we had purchased. 
And at the same time, they also laid off half the staff. So I, I go into my president's office and uh, he says, thanks for coming. Here's a check. <laughs> Is that how it happened? That's it. Really? Yeah. What was uh, going through your head? Um, I expected it because, listen, I can read the UEFA handbook and I can also read a look at our budget and I can say, yeah, these things don't match up. <laughs> and, uh, you know. I work for football clubs. I mean, I'm in the, I'm the, I'm on the executive team. I know what's happening. I know how this is going to go down. Then it's just a matter of, you know, trying to do the best you can, um, to help set yourself up financially, you know, uh, leave on good terms and, uh, and that's it. And it, you know, it was not only me, it was half a dozen other people and people on the, on the training staff, you know, our, you know, strength and conditioning coach and our physical trainer and like all these people. And unfortunately, that's the way it is. And this is this is why the UEFA puts these rules in place is to make sure that clubs don't overspend beyond their capacity, and that you protect the integrity of the club as a as an institution in the in the country or in the in the community. And uh, we got penalized for it. And um, you know, players left the business, and people lost their jobs. And this is just the way it is. Um, but you also don't want to be in a in a business that's in difficult situation like that. You know, a financial situation. So everything has a silver lining. So I'm in Monaco. Financially, everything is fine now, and uh, summertime's coming, and uh, I'm just going to hang out, <laughs> go to the beach, and this decide what I want to do next. What's the one memory you take with you from Monaco? What's the one thing that stands out? I would say it is um, the exhibition game we played in, in Barranquilla, or the, the time that we spent in, in Barranquilla. That... <laughs> A couple of things. One is, I mean, we, Facao is a god in Colombia, you know? And so, um, you know, we went to play this exhibition game and, and, um, against, um, who is it? Uh, Atletico Junior in Barranquilla. Full, full stadium, 50,000 people, a French team playing in Colombia. It's bizarre, right? And again, you know, this is, I'm from Abilene, Texas. So, you know, I thought this was amazing. And before that game, we, uh, we wanted to do some community initiatives. And so we actually went to one of those poorest neighborhoods in Barranquilla with Facao and went to this school. And, uh, I had this video of us driving through the streets in the team bus with all the players. And, uh, just the streets were lined for like a mile of all these people from Barranquilla that had come to the side of the road just to see the Os Monaco team bus go by with Facao inside of it. It was just an amazing experience. I mean, and we're from, you know, we live, we're in, we're in Monaco, right? Wealthiest place on the planet. And we're in Barranquilla, Colombia, one of the poorest places in South America, which is an amazing difference, right? The other memory I take from that trip is that James, this is 2014, James had won the Golden Boot, the World Cup, and he was in Colombia on holiday. And he was supply, supposed to fly from, from Colombia to Miami and meet us in Miami for our game in Miami. So we fly out of Barranquilla and um, we arrive in Miami and we go on Twitter and we see James is in the Madrid airport. And I go to our team manager and I say, was he supposed to fly from Medellin to Madrid to Miami? <laughs> he's like, no, he's supposed to fly from Medellin to Miami. <laughs> he's not supposed to go to Madrid. And they were like, ah, oh, okay, well, I guess he's a Real Madrid player now. <laughs> and he was, they sold him that day to Real Madrid. What we learned about it on Twitter as he's walking through the Madrid airport it was pretty funny. Amazing what social media does these say. Huh? That's it. So that was my, those are my two memories of, of that trip. When you were getting towards the end of, of your time at Monaco, 
relevant sports came about based out of here in New York. A lot of people don't know what relevant is. Um, what is it? Relevant sports is an organization that only does right now one thing, and that is run the International Champions Cup. And the International Champions Cup is a summer tournament featuring the top clubs, European football clubs, uh, coming to the U.S. as well as to China and Singapore and playing in the preseason tournament. The tournament is the International Champions Cup. So you have the clubs like Real Madrid, Barcelona, Manchester United, Chelsea, Liverpool, etc. coming and playing usually three games per team in the U.S. every July, as well as uh, China and Singapore. And for a couple of years, there was a, a few games in Australia as well. Um, and then this is relevant sports. The sole business is to run this tournament, own and operate this tournament. Relevant Sports is a was just one of the companies um, inside the family RSC Ventures, a family of agencies owned by or invested into by uh, by Stephen Ross. And Stephen Ross is Stephen Ross is the uh, founder of Related Companies, which is one of the largest um, commercial real estate developers in the world. And he's also the owner of the Miami Dolphins. And uh, you know, if you live in New York City, it's on the west side, this you have Hudson Yards, which is the largest commercial real estate development in U.S. history. Really? Yeah. Interesting. Um, when when you stepped in there, what was the role? My role at Relevant was chief commercial officer, which meant that I managed all marketing, PR, CSR, and revenue generating activities for the International Champions Cup. So take me through that. What what would that look like more specifically? So revenue generate, generating activities, sponsorship, um, ticketing, hospitality, merchandising and licensing, TV rights, marketing. It's it's uh, having a, a launch event uh, in the early spring to announce the teams that are coming and where they're going to be playing in the tournament schedule. Um, managing the uh, media buys, advertising buys, so social, digital, classical, classical meaning out of home, newspaper, TV, etc., Getting into the grassroots of, of the, of the communities where we're going to play the games, uh, developing the PR campaigns and communication about, you know, what the tournament's all about, uh, why do we have the tournament every year, what it means to the clubs, what it means to the soccer fan in the US or China or Singapore, and then doing CSR activities as well. So this past year we did a, a large activity with the, with the Make-A-Wish Foundation, which was fantastic. What does the, um, business model look like? The business model is really simple, and that is, you know, um, pay the teams to come over. So they actually pay the teams. Yeah, yeah, pay the teams to come over. How much do you pay? Well, that's confidential, but it's a lot of money, as you can imagine. Pay the teams to come over, uh, acquire a stadium. Uh, there's, a, there's, a, there's a transaction with the stadium, and you know the game happens. And as the promoter, there's a certain percentage of that that we keep. It's really simple economics. And if you do that big enough, you do that often enough, you can make a good business. How much does it generate on a yearly basis? This year? Um, that, I believe, is public. Yeah, it is. It is. Yeah, it's. I think we did 150, 160 this year. Million? 160 million, 150 million, 160 million. Something like that. Yeah, I mean, driven largely by um, El Clasico Miami. FC Barcelona versus Real Madrid. First time those teams have played each other outside of Spain. Second time only ever outside of Spain. First time since 1982, they played a small game in Venezuela. But that game we did in Miami, July 29th, this past summer. 
is the highest revenue generating soccer game in U.S. history and potentially even world history. You come across as a very, very, very focused, even just in, in what you told me in terms of the beginning of your career and at a fairly young age at 21, 22, 23, kind of having, you know, these types of goals and then being able to be so focused. Where, where does that focus come from and how do you how do you maintain that? Yeah, I don't know where it comes from. It's a bit obsessive, to be honest with you. It was the same as when I'm learning French or learning to play guitar or learning to play tennis. I grab onto something with both hands and I won't let it go. And um, I don't know where it comes from, but I have it. There's, a, uh, there's just a few key things. I mean, I'm really, really passionate about it and I just, I want to be as good as I possibly can. Even uh, even my first uh, you know year, a year and a half at, at, uh, at Liverpool, Ian, my boss, called me the machine because I was in the office every day, all day, seven days a week, working, 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 working because I wanted to be successful. And he was like, you're a machine, man. You're a machine. <laughs> I didn't think any different, you know. Do you have any routines for or do you have any way in, in which you celebrate your wins when you've done something well? I've learned um, now to do the more of that. I didn't do that in the beginning. And so even as an example, when Ian and I did the uh, deal with Standard Chartered to be the shirt sponsor of Liverpool, it's 20 million pounds a year times four years, 80 million pounds. Um, same size deal as Aon to be the main sponsor of Manchester United. Biggest deals in Europe, biggest deals in the Premier League. Um, did the deal, signed the deal. I didn't have a, a massive sense of elation after that deal. Yeah, I was happy. It was great. But it wasn't like, okay, job done. Career's over. Never going to get better. Never going to get any better than this. You know, taking the month off. Super successful. It wasn't like that. It was like, that was, all, that was awesome. Okay, now what? <laughs> like, what's next? And um, I've learned now to actually take a bit more of a pause, take take a beat and realize actually how big of a deal that is, right? A big deal, things like that. So, you know, when we signed Heineken to be the, the presenting sponsor of the ICC or when I did um, a deal with Nike to be the kit supplier of Ross Monaco or these kind of deals, I take a beat. I take a little bit longer and, and celebrate it because I realize that these are, you know, you only, you only need to do eight of these in a career, 10 of these in a career, something like that. And it's not until you get older that you really realize that these things are kind of few and far between. And there's, you know, there's not a lot of people in, in, in our industry that can say that I've done this kind of stuff. And, uh, you know, I was just blowing through it and going, what's the next thing? What's next? What's next? So I, I take a beat now. How do you celebrate it? Coffee. <laughs> <laughs> no, nah, I mean... Shopping. Yeah. Yeah. Seriously. Buy a suit. Buy some football boots. Buy a new guitar. I go buy stuff. Huh. That's it. Yeah. I buy, you know, I, I buy things that I'm, I buy things that, uh, that support my hobbies. I buy, buy a guitar, you know, buy a new tennis racket, buy new golf clubs, you know. What's the, the most extravagant thing that you've splurged on after one of those? After I did the Nike deal for us, Monaco, I think I went and bought like three suits, <laughs> three, three custom made suits. <laughs> that was pretty expensive in Monaco as well. How much did you spend? It was probably 10 grand. That's good. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 10,000, yeah. 10,000 euros. Um, you've been in negotiations your, 
your entire career uh, in football, you've dealt with some of the some of the big names, some of the big owners, some of the big uh, brand leaders, corporate leaders. Um, what would you say is something that it's maybe not part of the kind of common knowledge? Uh, we get a lot of recommendations. You know, we read business press about you know negotiation tactics and and. But what are some of the things in in your experience kind of that stand out that it's maybe not talked about that we should be a little bit more kind of aware about and negotiations at that level? I think probably, and I felt the same way too until I was involved in it. You think these things are far more complex than they actually are, right? You know, big sponsorship deals, big player transactions. From the outside looking in, you think that, you know, there is a room full of lawyers crunching numbers and, you know, discussing negotiation tactics. And this is like high pressure, high stakes situation. And normally it's a guy on the phone with a guy and saying, what do you think about this? Yep. Sounds about right. Okay. That's it. <laughs> you know, it's not, it's not as complex as, as you think it is. However, I will say that it takes uh, nerves of steel to negotiate these kinds of deals. And to be honest, I think this is why um, Os Monaco has done so well in the transfer market is because, you know, we talked about um, Rebolovlev and his number two, which is Vadim Vasiliev at Monaco. And these guys were running the state fertilizer business for Russia. And what they did is they negotiated container ships full of fertilizer and potash to Indians and Chinese and, you know, Egyptians and, you know, various countries around the world you know, container ships full of fertilizer worth millions and millions of dollars to, you know, foreign governments. This will teach you how to negotiate, right? Negotiating a player is nothing compared to this kind of thing. And Vadim is telling me this story. I ask him, why'd you, how'd you get so good at negotiating? Because after the Anthony Martial deal, where we purchased the player for 5 million and we sold him to United for 60 million and made a 55 million euro profit, how did you, how do you learn to, to negotiate like this? And he's like, I tell you, it's, it's, it's sending container ships full of fertilizer to Mumbai. This is where I learned how to do this and understanding who's across the table from you and knowing what your price is and, you know, knowing the negotiation tactics that, you know, people throw temper tantrums and they've threatened to walk away, but then they'll call you a week later and say, yeah, what's going, you know, how are you doing? They're just playing a game. So he, he's, he's one of the best guys for negotiation I've ever met in my career. And this is why I think Monaco gets these great, great prices for these players is because of this. But it wasn't learning, learning from the football business. He learned it from containers and fertilizer, you know? So it's not as complex as people think it is, but it is a high stakes game. And when you're negotiating, you know, multi-million pound deals, uh, long-term deals for sponsors or players or stadiums or whatever, you need to have, you need to have nerves of steel. And one of the things that I've noticed in the U.S. when I've come back after a couple of years is, you know, there'll be a presentation, a sponsorship presentation that'll get sent out and it'll say, we want a million dollars for the sponsorship. That'll be on the, you know, the proposal, but we hope we end up with uh, half a million. Well, if the price is a million, it's a million. It is what it is. Don't, don't negotiate against yourself, right? If you think a player is worth 10 million, the price is 10 million. Don't take anything less and stand your ground, you know? So I think that was, that's one thing is people think it's far more complex than it actually is, but it is high stakes and you have to have a serious backbone, you know? Are these skills that can be taught and, and learned or is there, how, how much does kind of say personality play into that? Certainly can be taught and learned and personality has, well, your personality has a lot to do with what you take on board and how well you learn and what you retain and all this stuff can be learned. And you just, I mean, you can't be learned in a textbook or a classroom. You have to go through it. 
Is football a good investment for somebody wanting to get in and, and buy a team? Football in the U.S. or football in Europe? Let's start with football in the U.S. Uh, soccer. Soccer. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, so, you know, if you were to advise an ownership group, or you might, let's say that you're part of one, you get mm-hmm. recruited by one and, you know, you go out and, and look at, you know, what are some potential targets? What, what's that approach? Because there are people who think that, you know, oh, let's get into football. That's a, it's growing. It's a winning proposition. Yeah, it depends on what you're, you're, you want your outcome to be. If you want to invest in a football property and cash out in 10 years with, you know, 10x or 15x returns, then you shouldn't invest in an MLS team. You shouldn't invest in a top Premier League team. Um, you should invest in a big championship club, talking about the U.K., um, a big club who has maybe fallen on hard times, hasn't performed so well, and maybe they're at the bottom of the top division table, or maybe they've been relegated. You know, when I joined Os Monaco, we were in the second division. We quickly came with very little investment. We came up to the first division, and uh, the following season we were in the quarterfinals of the Champions League. So it doesn't take much, depending on which league you're in, and if you make some smart decisions uh, in the beginning to move up the table, especially in the leagues outside of the Premier League. So what you're looking for is you're looking for if you're if you're looking to to make a bunch of money, you're making to you're looking to make money, then you need a big club that has been um, under commercialized and mismanaged in a way in one of the big leagues where if you get to the top league, the top division, you could see a lot of commercial and media revenue. So, you know, take a look through the championship and see which one of those clubs that are in the championship used to be a big club or is has the potential to be a big club if it could just get stop being sideways and get on the rails, right? Uh, if you're looking to just invest in a business and to a sports team because or a football club because you want to have a bit of fun and you want your kids to go to games, your family to go to games, and yeah, sure, invest in an MLS club or invest in a big Premier League club. It depends on how much money you have, right? But if you're looking to make money, there's a certain kind of club you would want to invest in. Um, I think what's most interesting more than football is is some of the NBA valuations these days. You know, some of these guys that bought NBA teams for 300, 400 million 10, 15 years ago and being sold for, you know, you know, 1.2 or 1.5 or $2 billion, you know, uh, NBA franchises are massively valuable these days. All righty. So we're moving into a set of uh, rapid fire questions. So here we go. Uh, favorite team? I would say uh, Liverpool. The proudest moment in your career? <sighs> The standard chartered main sponsorship of Liverpool. The most important characteristic to be successful in your position. Composure. What are you uniquely qualified to do? Uh, I would say organize and motivate. What are a couple of recommendations to someone wanting to follow in your footsteps? Get as much experience as you possibly can from Anywhere you possibly can get it, learn foreign languages. A uh, soccer business person you look up to and you think people should follow? Um, that's a good question. I would say um, 
Well, I mean, there's a handful of guys, right? I would say Bob Kraft. I would say uh, Ivan Gazidis, uh, Sunil Gulati, um, Lamar Hunt. Um, a person outside the sports world uh, that you look up to? person outside the sports world that I look up to. Yeah, I mean, it's the normal guys, right? It's like, uh, you know, Steve Jobs, Bill Gates, Warren Buffett. An organization you think people should uh, learn about that has a unique model? In sports, I would say the San Antonio Spurs. Why? You know, well-run organization, looking for a particular type of player to play for the for the club. Um pillar in the community and just you know a good brand people well respected um brand not for for the only for the performance but for for the culture of the business um one to three books that have massively impacted you i would say um the book uh the first business bit real business book i ever read which was good to great <laughs> Which is probably a lot of people's first business book they ever read, right? This one was. I would also say um, the biography of John Adams by McCullough. It's you know it's fascinating to think about people building a country, <laughs> breaking away from one country to build another country. And um, recently, um, there's the twenty uh, one irrefutable laws of leadership that I read over and over and over again. That's a good one. Um, a movie recommendation. Moneyball. Yeah, that is a that is a very good one. Um, the most well-known soccer contact in your phone. The most well-known soccer contact in my phone. Uh, Charlie Stilettano. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, probably followed by Sonia Galati. You get to have dinner with three people in the soccer world, past or present, mm -hmm. and let's assume language is not a barrier. Who are the three? Right. I'd say uh, Pele, Seth Blatter, <laughs> um, and uh, Diego Maradona. Where would you take them? I would take them to somewhere in Monte Carlo. <laughs> Give me a good spot. Uh, the weekends. Why not? <laughs> How can people get hold of you or, or follow you? Um, the normal ways, right? Um, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram. What's your uh, Twitter handle? Excellent question. I think it's B. Brundrit, Bruce Brundrit. Is that the same for Instagram, Facebook? Yeah. yeah. Pretty easy to find. Do you have anything you would like to recommend? The one thing that I would recommend is... For everybody, if it's at all possible, every couple of years, take a couple of months off and don't work. There is a period of time in between where I quit my job at GMR on the visa business in San Francisco. And before I received my work permit at Liverpool, there was a six-week period where I was living in San Francisco with nothing to do except just wait for my work permit to arrive for the UK. And it was the best six weeks of my life. What'd you do? And do anything. Just read, worked out, you know, had lunch with friends. I went home. They went back to the office. <laughs> and uh, 
you know, it's brilliant to, for a couple of weeks in a row, not to have an alarm to wake up to. You can do whatever you want, whenever you want. And I also did this, the same thing after I left, uh, Os Monaco. And during this period of time, you really figure out because, you know, unless you're owning your own business, you're, you're on somebody, normally you're on somebody else's time, right? You're on your boss's time, your colleague's time, you're working for somebody else. When you're not working at all and you have this, you know, this period of time when you're just alive and living, you start thinking and you start realizing what your real interests are and how you really would like to spend your day. If you can wake up every morning and say, I can do whatever I want to do today. I can spend the time however I want to spend. And there's nobody questioning me. The only person is me. I think it changes a lot of things in your life. It changes what you watch, what you read, what you do. Um, so I would recommend to everybody, if you can, I would say a lot of every four years, five years, take two months off and do absolutely nothing but just be alive. That's an excellent recommendation. That's the thing you should do. Yeah. I think there's even some companies that do that. So they say every seven years, you get you have to take six months off. You're forced to take six months off. Yeah, that's a good one. Yeah. Yeah. Especially in these fast-paced kind of environments that, that we're in. Yeah. Very few people kind of just stop and and reflect for a little bit. You know? Um Last one. Who do you think I should interview on this show? Uh, Don Garber. Yeah, he's on my list. Yeah, you should interview him. Fantastic. Um, Bruce, seriously, thank you so much. No We've, problem. uh, I spent about an hour and a half more than I had asked for. So very much appreciate it. I thank you so much and, uh, yeah, best of luck in, in your upcoming endeavors. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Thank you. listening i hope you enjoyed it if you did please subscribe on itunes and write a review i would really appreciate it as we grow this podcast one listener at a time if you have any feedback or ideas feel free to send me an email at sebastian at coffeeandfootball.com you can also link up with me via twitter the handle is at coffeesfootball stay tuned for next episode it will be another amazing one thanks again and have a great week